Why forge when you can hop in your petroleum-fueled vehicle and hit the closest Whole Foods? Well, number one, because you're smart, and number two, because you know better. You probably also know that by incorporating wild foods into your everyday diet, that you not only help optimize your health, but also increase longevity. Not only are these foods often more nutritious, but they're also found right in our very backyards. Today's guest will share some of his knowledge about wild foods, the dangers of glyphosate, and the type of work he wants to see with today's online rewilding community. Along with those fun facts, you'll also be learning why wild foods are the cornerstone of any neo-ancestral lifeway, how to correctly process acorns and why that's important, why women are better nutrient transformers than men, and much, much more. Again, thank you for joining me on today's episode of Ancestral Health Radio. Again, this is your host, James Kevin Broderick. Ancestral Health Radio bridges the divide between our modern technology and inherent ancestral wisdom. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Take a walk on the wild side. Ben Belty is the owner and founder of wildfoodwarehouse.com, a company dedicated to sourcing the best wild food ingredients for optimal health. He resides in Louisville, Kentucky, where he enjoys foraging and exploring the local landscape, both rural and urban, as well as spending time with his newborn daughter, Amada. He also enjoys cooking with wild foods, studying Taoism, natural health, and visiting springs as often as possible. Ben is also the admin of the Facebook group Rewild Yourself. In addition to his business, he also enjoys working full-time for Woodland Farm in Goshen, Kentucky, a producer of pasture-raised bison and forest-finished heritage pork. Welcome, Ben. How you doing? I'm doing real, real well. I'm glad to have you on board. Yeah, um, glad to be here. Yeah, uh, this is going to be a great talk. Uh, we already spoke a little bit before. We all we kind of got to know each other a little bit better, and um, we've got some really good questions lined up for you. So, how about we dive right in? And um, can you just begin maybe uh, today's radio show with uh, maybe sharing your story and the type of relationship you have with ancestral health and the Rewild Yourself Facebook group? Um, well. Uh, I would say that my journey with ancestral health kind of started when I was around 18 years old. I was um, starting to learn about vegetarianism and veganism, and I just knew that something was wrong with the way I was eating, the way I was living, like just something was off. And um, I was injured when I was 18, and I had to get a surgery on my wrist. And that kind of made me think, I never want to get a surgery again in my life. And I was also scheduled to have my wisdom teeth pulled and to have my um, my tonsils removed, two of, two things of which I never did, and I'm fine now. Um, so that was kind of my first introduction into like natural health. Um, I realized that I could actually heal my body and that I didn't have to you know be subjected to all these modern medical traumas that most people are um, subject subjected to. Um, so. From there, I sort of explored uh, vegetarianism and all that stuff for a couple of years, and then I realized that that wasn't going to be the best thing for my health either. So I started to transition back into more local foods, um, started going to farms, um, started drinking raw milk, learning about herbs, and it just kind of went off from there to where 
started studying at the Maine Primitive Skills School, um, where I kind of learned more and more about ancestral living um, and how interaction with nature is connected with mental health and physical health and all this stuff. So, I mean, it's just, it's all, I've just kind of learned it's all one big interconnected um, web of, of things once you get into ancestral health, whereas the modern medical, you know, wellness thing is kind of like all these different fragmented things where ancestral health is kind of more of an integrated approach to wellness. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, Frank Fornsich and I actually spoke about that. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the long body approach. I'm not, but it sounds interesting. So Frank just basically uh, speaks about how the Native Americans used to have something that was a foundation or cornerstone of their culture, which was essentially called the long body. And it took into account not only your physical movement, not only um, not only your nutrition, but also your habitat and tribe. It was that full picture. Absolutely. And, and he also discusses about uh, reductionalism and how we, we tend to do that with our medical system. So so great. Um, so So where did that... So where else did that take you? Basically, um, I just started learning about, um, you know, so many things. I, I learned that, that food um, is, is a pretty important aspect of the, of the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Um, you know, they did obviously spend um, a great deal of time um, procur- procuring foods, um, but also they didn't even spend, they didn't have to spend as much time as we spend in modern life trying to secure our, um, necessary resources. You know, they were spending 15 to 25 hours a week and then the rest of the time was leisure. So, um, I've started to sort of explore more of the, the, the food aspects. I would say that that's probably one of the most important, um, aspects to me of, of the rewilding practice, just because I think it's kind of the, 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 the hinge of everything because your food kind of anchors you to where you are. And when the food runs out where you are, then you have to move somewhere else. But in our society, we can stay put and we can just import as much as we can from somewhere else without realizing that we're taking from somewhere else. So the people that live in the area that we're taking from are being disadvantaged. Whereas if we would just focus more on what's already available, we would be doing less harm to ourselves and to other people around the world. Um, so that kind of, for me, that's involved figuring out uh, local fruits, local nuts, um, herbs, things like that, and also learning how to produce food out of them because a lot of wild foods aren't just like, you don't just pick something off the tree and eat it. You have to um, kind of process it to remove anti-nutrients and other things, which we can go into that a little bit later. Okay, yeah, absolutely. So foraging sounds like it's it's a big big part of of your lifestyle as well too. Yeah, maybe we want to talk about that then. What what are some of the the staple foods that you would say that that you actually procure maybe this season? Like what what would you be procuring in in, in this time of year? Um, well, my favorite food um that I can actually favorite wild food that I can actually get myself is um probably acorns and also um persimmons too. Uh, this year I've, I've gathered a lot of persimmons. Um, it's a really great wild food. The only problem with persimmons is you have to make sure they're ripe. Otherwise they're really astringent and they do not taste good at all. Oh, they taste terrible. Um, yeah. And, and that's, and that's the thing that you'll find with a lot of wild foods is you have to know exactly when they're ripe in order to eat them or know how to process them to make them taste good. But once you do that, they taste really good. Um, another one for me is acorns. 
um, you know, oak trees are pretty much everywhere in this whole country, except for maybe like in the desert. But even the desert has several species of oak trees um, that, that people used to use as food. Um, you know, that's one of the most underappreciated and underutilized wild food in 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 the uh, in the world, I think. Um, a lot of people are really focused on gathering wild herbs, which I think is cool. But, you know, you can't live on dandelion tea and, and nettles and stuff. You, you need some kind of, uh, you know, you need a starch, you need a fat, you need a protein um, to, to keep you going. And w- when you're when you realize that you start to look for more things. And and that's really what my focus is with wild harvesting food has been mostly the calorie dense things. I mean, I, the herbs I've known about those for a long time and I think those are great, but I've really the past couple of years focused on getting the calories. Um, another awesome wild food that many people don't even consider as being a wild food is maple syrup. And that's obviously a really dense food. Um, it's sugar. So a lot of people kind of have some baggage with sugar. Um, and they would kind of, you know, some paleo people might kind of back away from maple syrup because it's so high in sugar. But um, the fact of the matter is that Native Americans at different points of the year would subsist almost solely on maple syrup or maple sugar, actually, or the sap um, during the times when they were making it. Obviously, not everyone in the tribe was doing it. It was mostly the people that were making it and then bringing it back to the camps. But I've read several accounts where um, from from settlers that would say that the Native Americans that would go into the sugar bushes, they would go into the sugar bush looking sick from winter from being, you know, malnourished or whatever, if they didn't end up having enough food. And they would come out of the sugar bush with a new, like, lease on life, with a new vibrance of health. And the, the, um, the settlers, they just couldn't understand why it was, but it was because they were just drinking this, this really mineral rich food, um, they were making themselves and they were, they were living on it for, uh, several days or weeks or months at a time. Um, another, uh, great wild food, and this is not one that I can get myself here where I live, but I'm sort of working on, uh, uh, trying to get it here is wild rice. And it actually Mm -hmm. used to be native to, uh, many areas of the United States. And it's been naturalized in a few places out West where it was not, uh, naturally occurring, but it's primarily grown, growing still in um, the Midwest, uh, Wisconsin, some parts of Illinois, uh, Minnesota. It's actually the state uh, grain, I believe, of Minnesota. And then obviously uh, Canada, um, Ontario, Saskatchewan, um, or even over to Maine. Uh, it still grows in Maine, and there's people there in Maine that harvest it still. Um, and, the, and the thing that I like about wild rice is it's, it's another food like acorns that you can live off of and be completely satiated by, um, and, and live on for, you know, months at a time. I've, there's been weeks where I just ate mostly wild rice and I felt great. You know what I mean? And the cool thing about wild rice is since it's, since it's a wild food, it's growing in soils that are, um, for the most part, not contaminated with a lot of the things that the land-based crops are, are, are subjected to because, the wild rice is growing in areas that have been protected um, through uh, reservations um, and things like that. And another thing, a cool thing about wild plants in general, but specifically wild rice, is that any pollution, heavy metals, contaminants, things like that, tend to stay 
the, the plants tend to keep them down in the in the ground or in their in their lower parts, whereas some other plants will allow the um, pollution and the pollutants to go up into the rest of the plant. Okay. Um, so that's I think, and that's that's one of the things that I think prevents a lot of people from um, wanting to forage is they're often afraid of contamination, um, especially people in, in urban settings. Um, they won't want to harvest things because they're afraid of um, things getting contaminated. Like water, for example. Yeah, yeah water obviously is, is a big thing, and, um, and, that, and that's one of the reasons why I spend the time, take the time to go get spring water is because that's new water coming out of the ground that's been in the ground for a long time. Or if it's, uh, if it's, if it's, um, some, some springs are filtered basically through the ground and then they come out, but there's also other springs that are aquifers where the, it's new water coming out. That's been underground for a really long time. Yeah. And it, and it's, it's just coming out and it's going to be full of minerals and, um, microflora that are really beneficial to the body. Um, so let's see, we kind of went off on a big tangent there. No, that's um, okay. So, so what, yeah. so you were talking about maybe, uh, some of the barriers to entry for yeah, maybe okay. novice or wilds, rewilders when it comes to foraging food. Um, maybe you want to talk about acorns a little bit more because, you know, even outside of where I work, my nine to five right now, there's several different species of acorn or, uh, uh, oak tree out there and they're just dropping acorns all the time. You know, and yeah. I think people, they drive over them. They don't even, they don't think twice about acorns at all. So maybe you want to tell a little bit about, um, the exactly how it's a staple and maybe we want to dispel the myth of, of kind of carbohydrates and fat and, you know, this, this big, this big paleo thing that's going on right now. Cause I know in the rewilding group, I hear a lot of people, uh, there's a lot of fiery conversations about that in the group about carbohydrates versus fat, low carbohydrates, high fat. Well, you know, w what is that all about? But we understand the acorns and wild rice and all these things are a staple of Native American and indigenous people's foods. Uh, what, what is your opinion on that? Um, well, when it comes to the, the low carb thing and, and, and all that, I think that it's basically what what's happening is 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 fat is is the fad. Mm. And which which fat is obviously necessary, and it's it was missing from our diet for you know several decades, um, but carbs really are not the the demon that they are being made out to be. I think that there's a lot of factors that we can talk about later um, that make them less than desirable for most modern people. Um, but if we really look at a lot of indigenous cultures, in in the acorn is really a big indicator of this is is they almost all had staple starches and they may not have eaten them all year but they were there and if they were there the people are going to eat them because it's easy food it's quick food and um it's 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 nutrient dense food um a lot of people associate carbs with being empty but mm -hmm. in the case of acorns you know a lot of oak trees especially if you're going to find oak trees that are that are really old, their roots are going deep down into the ground. They're breaking into very mineral-rich, you know, rocks, limestone, granites, all these things, and the roots are taking in those minerals, and the minerals are getting deposited into the fruits because 
the fruit is going to be the new growth of the plant. So that plant is going to want to put as much good stuff into that seed as it can. So that seed can go forth and grow again. Um, and that's also why there's anti-nutrients in plants is because plants, you know, they're not necessarily making food for us. They're making new plants. So they're going to try to figure out a way to make it so things don't eat them anymore so they can continue to grow. Now, there's obviously symbiotic relationships with different things, but ultimately um, life is always going to look out for itself before it really looks out for anything. And that's almost that's just in any sphere, any kingdom of life, there's always going to be some level of self-preservation going on. And that's really what the antinutrients come down to is, is the plants just trying to protect themselves and, and allow themselves to propagate. Um, now that's, that's the thing with the acorns is, and, and a big barrier for people even wanting to pursue acorns as a food is the amount of work that it takes to, to, to go from an acorn on the ground to food on your plate. Um, there's tannins in acorns and there's phytic acid in acorns, like, you know, most other nuts and seeds of plants. Um, but it's really as simple as grinding them up, soaking them, them, soaking them in water for a couple of days, changing the water many times and tannins are water soluble. So as you change the water, you're washing out the tannins and eventually the tannins are gone and then you can eat it. And you end up with a really vitamin and mineral rich, protein rich, and depending on the species of oak, a very high fat food, not pure fat, but very high in fat, which is very satiating to the body. Um, what I think exactly, that, what, what would you make with acorns? You know, I'm trying to think, because I, I honestly haven't done a lot of acorn foraging myself or, or done any processing of acorns, but... You know, I'm just trying to think of what what exactly. So you'd make acorn flour, or you would just you'd throw it in various different um, foods. You know, atop, like how yeah, would you, you can, incorporate that into your diet exactly? You can do a lot of things with acorns. Um, you can you can grind them up, um, you know, like a very fine flour, and you can make things out of them, like cake and brownies, and you know, a lot of normal kind of uh, snack foods that most people eat that are made out of really low quality ingredients. Um, you can substitute and you can make really nice, healthy snack foods that you can take with you when you're doing your regular day-to-day. -day. You know, you're going to work, you're going to your kid's soccer game, you're doing all these normal things, but you're doing them and supporting yourself with actual food. And you can really function a lot better on these foods. I mean, there's a reason why people eat, you know, a lot of junk food and it's 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 because modern life requires a very large expenditure of energy you know what i mean and the problem is is that the foods nowadays are breaking people down they're not supporting their active lifestyle it's just calories in quick calories and go um, whereas if we slow down a little bit spend a little bit more time um, making you know just a more rich food for ourselves that's more nutrient dense, we can still do some of these things that we are required to do in modern life, but we can just do them in a more supported way. Um, but to get back to other things you can do with acorns, you can also grind them up in a um, more coarse manner and you can make like uh, grits out of them. Mm. You can make, um, you can, you can even eat them like as a bean substitute in like a chili or a soup. 
Um, you can also use the flour as a thickener for soups. Um, and it really, it really transforms a soup from like a side dish into like a meal. I mean, it really gives it some really substantive calories and, and nutrients that can really get you through the day. I mean, sometimes I'll just eat, like I'll make a soup and I'll put a little bit of acorn flour in it and a little bit of butter or some other kind of really good fat. Mm. And I'll eat that for breakfast and I'll be good for the rest of the day. And like, I might eat another meal at like three or four o'clock and then I'm done for the night. Like I really, I try not to eat a regular dinner. Now I do sometimes if I'm really hungry, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. But I try not to eat after dark. I try mm. to be done with my meals before it gets dark and that way i can have that that long you know that fast that 12 hours of not eating or whatever um that feasting but, fasting approach yeah but but you can really only do that regularly if you're really supporting yourself during the day with food um nutrient but, dense food right yeah nutrient dense food yeah i mean you really need to you really need to set yourself up to 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 get in that get in that nutrition during the day when the when your digestion and your metabolism is really going good and then at night you just you just let your whole body rest your digestion your mind your your muscles your body just everything you just let it rest and that's the thing that when when we get on this you know when we're on this more uh, rewilded lifestyle we we start to sink into these patterns you know and we can even still exercise these patterns and set our lives up in a way where we're still making the money that we need to make to support ourselves and we're still having these jobs that we might have to have we really just have to be intentional with it and we really have to be clear with what we want to do and when we're clear with what we want to do in our life things just start to happen that 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 really support us but um i think that the modern world really doesn't necessarily support that but we really have to figure out um, how to do that. And I think that that's kind of the key to health is really taking care of yourself and, and doing the things that you know you need to do to stay healthy. And for me, one of those things is foraging because when I, when I eat wild food exclusively, um, I feel so much better than, than when I don't. And wild food, um, for the most part is free, right? <sighs> Yeah, it's it's free, so. You know? I mean, so not only are you getting more nutrient dense food, but you're also saving money. So, yeah, you're saving money. Uh, so you're less. educating yourself. You're learning how. You know, I mean, just imagine if if things were to go south tomorrow, do you want to be one of the people that depend on going to the grocery store for your food, or do you want to be able to be outside, look around, identify a plant, and know that that's going to be a way to sustain yourself for at least a, a couple days or however long it takes you, right? Yeah, it's just amazing how much food is out there that we just don't even know. And that's just in our developed, you know, in our in our developed world that's been completely decimated by industry. The food, the wild food is still there. Just imagine what it was like before, you know, there were cities and before there were massive clear-cut forests that are now grain fields for cattle and for um, people that want to live on an exclusively grain-based diet. I mean, they say that the the North American continent was, especially on the East coast was basically just like a gigantic nut farm with pastures underneath it that the bison would roam on hmm. and that people would harvest the fruits and the nuts and they would live on the bison and then they would, you know, do other kinds of gathering of various roots and things like that. But we've just changed the landscape so much. We don't even know what's possible. We're so conditioned to, to be dependent on farming that we just can't even fathom what, 
it would have been like to live on an exclusively wild diet. Yeah, I mean, and it's funny, too, because even when you try uh, to intentionally uh, eat well with your diet, you can still be making so many uh, ill-informed choices, right? So even, if exactly. you, so even if you did go to the farmer's market, you have a strong relationship with, with your rancher and you're buying quality protein, even the protein that you're buying from the rancher is still a domesticated form of, of meat, right? It doesn't matter whether it's pastured. It's, it's still not a wild progenitor of, of whatever animal this was, right? Yeah, especially if, you know, if, you're, if you're buying cows and pigs and, um, and chickens and stuff, those are all very domesticated, which is fine. Um, I think that we can still derive the same kind of benefits from them, um, ultimately, as we can with wild foods. But the wild version of whatever it is that we want to eat is just it's, it's almost always going to be better right. um, because it's going to be it's, it's going to be coming from a, a better, um, healthier you know, genetic stock, if you will. I mean, wild animals, they know how to live in the world and, and, and take care of themselves or else they wouldn't live. Domesticated animals don't. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's, we've created a, a very easy way for, um, to feed ourselves, but we've also done it at a cost. Absolutely. Um, so, maybe we could talk about a little bit about, um, some of the animal foods that are available to us, um, that might not, not, not necessarily be something that we can get for ourselves, but things that we can get at the grocery store, um, that would support us in the same way as if we were to go out and get wild foods ourselves. Um, and, and some of my favorite things to buy at the store, um, that are wild would be sardines, for example. Mm -hmm. um, sardines aren't farm-raised. They're going to be all wild. And they're a species of fish that's really low on the food chain, so the contamination risk is very low with them. Um, another cool thing about sardines is if you buy the ones that are um, intact, so you're going to get the skin and the bones of the fish, so you're going to be eating that whole fish, um, whereas other things um you know if you're just going to the fish counter and you're just getting a fillet of tilapia like that's just the muscle of the fish it's not none of the bones none of the collagens none of the organs none of that um so that's one thing that i like about sardines is and they're cheap you know you can get a, a can of sardines for uh you know a dollar or two dollars or three dollars just depends on what I brand will, you get i will tell you though guys that you probably want to spend a little bit more money on the sardines especially if you're not used to eating them because you know Although they may all be wild, not all of them taste the same. So yeah, yeah, there's definitely um, different um, tastes in them for sure. And and one one interesting thing that I found though is I think it the taste oftentimes has more to do with how quick they get processed hmm. than anything else. Because I've heard that the fishy smell is basically the um, the oil. The, yeah, the oil's uh, sort of volatilizing and going bad, whereas I've, I've bought sardines before that had almost no smell to them, and they tasted great, but they had almost no fishy smell to them, and then there's been other ones where I bought them, and it's like, whoa, like, smells like, almost like cat food or something. Yeah, I've also heard, too, I like to buy, well, when I go to my farmer's market, um, you know, I'm lucky that they have a fish market there as well, too, and, you know, they, they were pretty persistent on saying that when you buy the sardines fresh like that, because they are such an oily fish and they can go rancid very quickly that you want to prepare them within the first day or two as well too. 
So, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously when you buy them in the store, they're packed within these tins, packed within olive oil, typically, you know, water or olive oil, I'd personally get them in olive oil, but um, you want to prepare them fairly quickly if you do buy them fresh. Absolutely. Um, another uh, great wild food that, or, or semi-wild food that you can buy, um, you know, at Whole Foods or something like that is uh, oysters and mussels and clams. Even when those things are farm-raised, they're essentially still a wild food because they're still growing in um, managed um, areas just in ocean. It's basically just private areas that, you know, whoever um, owns the the farm has, has purchased or whatever, and they're controlling it, but they're not doing anything. They're not adding any kind of chemicals. They're not they're not feeding them anything. They're basically just seeding the rocks with the oysters or if, um, if it's mussels or clams, they have these, these, these wires that they, they seed with the clam, hmm. um, embryos or whatever. I'm not sure how exactly what the life cycle of a mussel is, but they do some kind of process that they call seeding. And they basically just dangle these wires down on the ground in the ocean, just out in the free ocean and they just allow the mussels and the clams to develop on these um, on these wires, and then they pull them up and they harvest them, and it's just as good as a wild um, as a wild mussel or a wild clam. Um, and those are great. Um, mussels and clams specifically are really great for DHA, um, which is a which is a, a fatty acid that we need for brain development and health and neurological health. Um, they're also really high in minerals too, um, trace minerals that. Um, we don't really get very many other places unless we're adding things like trace mineral drops to our water mm -hmm. um, and things like that, or if we're drinking spring water, obviously. But um, pretty much any kind of wild food you can get out of the ocean is going to have a lot of nutrient density in it. Like, for example, seaweeds are really awesome um, wild green that you can get. You know, they're dried, and at, at uh, any kind of health food store is going to have them. Um, you know, you can just soak them and then, you know, you can cook them up or add them to soups like you would kale or something. And there's so much more nutrients in those, in those saltwater, um, greens than there is those sea vegetables than there is in land-based, um, foods like kale or collard greens or mustard greens or anything like that. Um, even wild, um, green foods are not going to be as nutrient dense. I'm sorry land-based wild green foods like nettles still aren't going to have as much nutrition in them as, um, as the, the ocean varieties of, of plant foods, if would, that makes sense. So would you, would you recommend that people uh, who are looking to rewild their diet perhaps um, begin looking more at seafood and sea vegetables? Is that, is that essentially absolutely. what they yeah, should be absolutely. doing? absolutely. Um, and, and the cool thing about that stuff too is it's so dense that you you will eat less food when you eat things like that. The more nutrient dense food you eat, the less overall food you eat. And and I found um, if if I start to really get heavy on the carbs, I really uh, find that if I start to if if I eat a little even a little bit of seafood, like a few shrimp in a soup or a little bit of seaweed in a soup or something like that my food cravings just like disappear like immediately. It's just like, like I can go one bowl of soup or something and then I'm done. If I put some, some kind of ocean, you know, or I eat some oysters or something like that. It's, it's really those, those, there's just something about the ocean 
the ocean foods that really satisfy your body in, in a different kind of way um, than any any kind of land based um, land based food does. Not not to say that that stuff's not important because you know if you're living in a landlocked place like I do in Kentucky, it's mm-hmm. really not super sustainable to be um, consuming tons and tons of, of of ocean food. But but it's a really nice supplement for me um, to go get a you know half a dozen oysters or a dozen oysters, you know, once or twice a month. Um, it really, it really helps me stay healthy for right. sure. And oysters are, are high in selenium and CoQ10. Isn't that true? Absolutely. And, um, zinc as well. So, so zinc, I know, especially for men is extremely good for, uh, sexual development and, uh, CoQ10 is also provides energy for the main powerhouse of our cells, the mitochondria, if I'm correct. Absolutely, yes. And then um, the selenium is, selenium is just a, a mineral that in today's SAD diet, standard American diet, a lot of us are actually lacking from a lot of the foods that we're eating. Yeah, absolutely. And another interesting thing about selenium too is, is it, um, it mitigates some of, the, some of the side effects of methylmercury that a lot of people are afraid of in seafood. Mm. Um, selenium sort of deals with that um, in, in a way that I'm not really super well versed in. I just know that I've read that in many places, and I've been at a few conferences where they they really focused on that. Um, also, because, the the uh, the iodine for, or at least the seaweed as well that you were talking about, right? The yes. chlorophyll from the seaweed also binds with heavy metals as well. Is it? Yeah, um, iodine protects the body from a lot of things: radiation, heavy metals. Um, a lot of that stuff, it just helps to helps to sort of just fortify the metabolism and the, and the elimination pathways in your body um, are really tonified by uh, using iodine and, and other things like that. Like selenium, it's, it's a really nice antioxidant for the body. Um, another food, another wild food that you can buy um, at the store that is really high in selenium is Brazil nuts, mm. um, and and those are actually a, still a wild food. They're they're collected from uh, trees in the um, I think in the in the Amazonian rainforest, like in Brazil, uh, people go out and they collect the Brazil nuts. And I'm not super well versed in like the ethics of the Brazil nut, and that's something that I would like to to learn more about because Brazil nuts are one of the things that I really do like to buy. Um, once or twice a year, I'll get a big bag of them and you really only need to eat like one or two, like a day or even a week. They're (laughs) big, they're big and they have so much nutrition in them that you really don't need to eat a ton of them. I mean, one or two and you're fine for a few days. Um, I noticed, here's a question because I noticed that you, you do like eating a lot of nuts. Are you ever worried about the ratio of omega six to omega three fatty acids? Um, that's one of the cool things about you know, wild foods is just wild foods in general is the, the ratio of omega six and omega threes is much more balanced in um, those foods. Because if you look at a wild food and you look at a a domesticated food, you notice a a certain level of proportion differentiation. If you, if you, you know what I mean? Like if you look at a, um, look at a cow and you look at a bison, mm-hmm. and if you if you look at the proportions of the body parts and the proportions of the amounts of fats versus the amounts of, of muscle and everything, cows are a very like sort of deformed looking creature. If you compare it like 
to a bison, and I don't want to sound like mean or anything to cows, but they're very disproportionately developed, whereas a bison is much more proportional, and the, the amount of body fat on a bison is significantly less than that on a cow. Mm. Now, if you look at something like um, a more heirloom variety of corn, the kernels are very small compared to like, you know, Monsanto's finest Roundup Ready corn, big fat kernels. So what's that going to mean? It's going to mean that there's not only do they visually look inflated, but they're going to be, you know, they're going to have inflated levels and imbalanced levels of other things like right. fats and sugars and carbohydrates. All these things are just going to be inflated in very imbalanced ways. But when we when we start to look at wild foods, wild rice for example, a more wild rice is a very low fat food. I mean, we're talking like very minuscule amounts of oils are in wild rice, but there is some and it's almost equal ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids, which hmm. is what you want. But the American diet is like 10, 20, 30 to 1 omega-6s to 1 omega-3. Right. And the omega-3s that a lot of people are getting are from either rancid fish oils or from uh, uh, vegetable sources, which is um, a harder to convert vegetable uh, forms of omega-3 into the DHA that we actually need in our bodies. Um, a lot of people try to supplement um, omega-3s with plant forms, and the conversion ratio is really um, inefficient. It's better in women than mm, in men. I've heard that. But um, Yeah. But um, because women have breasts and they make breast milk and they're just overall better nutrient transformers than men are in a lot of things. Um, so overall wild foods are going to have a better ratio of omega-6 to omega-3. Omega so that's why I'm not really concerned necessarily about my, my ratios is because I'm eating, like, mostly the nuts that I eat, I'm eating hazelnuts, Brazil nuts, acorns, pecans, and occasionally I'll eat peanuts, but not a lot. And almonds are one of the things that are actually really high in omega-6. They're, like, one of the highest in omega-6, and I really avoid almonds. I do, too. Pretty, pretty <laughs> strictly. I mean, for many reasons. They're ecologically... Uh, not the best choice. They re we, sorry. They require a lot of water to grow. Oh, a ton. Um, and then you know almond milk. You know it's just it's just water with like two almonds in it to make it white, and that's it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's just. I just I just I don't know. I kind of hate almonds myself. I always have. I've never liked them since I was a kid. I was just I just didn't like them. Now the almond flavor is kind of nice, but. Overall, I'm just not a big almond guy, and I know that's a really popular thing in paleo is to you know use almond flour as a as a substitute for regular flour, but it's really creating some of the same um, side effects that I find wheat produces. Like if I eat something made with almond flour, I get gas, I get a headache, like my stomach feels weird, like I just don't I just don't get almond flour, but some people love it. You know, and that's great, but I prefer to eat, um, you know, more, more heirloom nuts, I guess you could say. Yeah. And if you're, and if you're cooking with almond flour, you got to think how many almonds did it take for that, you know, that cup 
Absolutely. <laughs> of almond can't. flour. I mean, that's a ton of almonds right there. Yeah. Try to eat, try to eat that many almonds and you'll see what happens. Exactly. You know what I mean, you, you're, you're just not gonna, um, you're just not going to be able to do that. You know, um, what? I, I heard you talk about Monsanto, you were talking about corn and then you said Roundup. Yeah. Um, in our discussion earlier, I remember you were saying that you right now one of your passions is learning more about the effects of glyphosate. Yeah, um, that is something that I've been researching pretty significantly lately, um, and it's I'm I'm glad that it's kind of starting to take some foothold in the in the health world. Um, it's something that I've sort of had some intuitive thoughts about for the past couple of years. I've seen several articles about. Um, where it's showing up in our food. And so basically Roundup is used on uh, most non-organic grain crops like corn, soy, and wheat. And, um, well, soy is not a, soy is not a grain, but it's still heavily contaminated with Roundup and oats as well. Um, and so what Roundup basically does, um, in the agricultural world is they use it as a drying agent as a desiccant is what they call it, in order to dry the grains to bring them to the market faster. Um, it's also, and a lot of people don't know this, it's also um, patented by Monsanto as an antibiotic. And it was originally used by a different company as a metal chelator to, I think it was to like clean some kind of, some kind of metal storage tanks for some kind of chemicals or water or something. Um, so it has a lot of health effects that are less than ideal. Um, another interesting thing about it is it's a glycine amino acid analog, which basically means that it, it, it fills the same, um, receptor site on a protein chain as glycine does. And glycine is an amino acid that we find in like bone broths and, um, eggs actually have a lot of glycine, um, and a lot of alternative protein sources that many people now see as kind of, um, awful as they call organ meats mm. um hey guys real quick after listening to this episode i need you to answer two important questions for me number one what is your biggest frustration when it comes to ancestral health and or rewilding and number two where do you go to get your information what websites blogs or people online do you follow that's it so again number one What's your biggest frustration when it comes to ancestral health or rewilding? And number two, where do you go to get your information? By answering these two questions, you help me create the content I know you not only want, but need. So again, guys, thank you. That's it. I super appreciate it. You can email me your answers after the show at james at ancestralhealthradio.com. Glycine is really important for our connective tissue. Um, development and um, maintenance, skin, bones, hair, fingernails, all that stuff is, is driven by glycine um, and supported by glycine. And Roundup is, is, is filling these same sites as glycine is, and that's why people are having so many issues with gut health, with skin, you know, skin irritations, um, people's hair, you know, hair loss, um, inhibited digestion, uh, Crohn's disease, all of these things are because the connective tissue and like literally the matrix of our body is being invaded by this chemical that is in almost everything that people are eating that's, you know, regular conventional mainstream food is just soaked with this stuff. And it just, 
it's it's such a such an evil thing i don't even know like how to describe the feelings that i actually have for this stuff but it actually <laughs> um it, it's a it's a mineral chelator too so not only is it is it is it attacking our, our the matrix of our body our, our skin and our bones and um all of that it's also inhibiting calcium manganese magnesium um and, and several other minerals that we need for a healthy, you know, system and a healthy body, Roundup is 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 disallowing our bodies from absorbing these things, and it's these things are just passing through us if we, if we're even getting enough of them at all. Um, so, I've really been trying to develop some strategies to, you know, one avoid Roundup and two uh, buffer the effects of it when I am exposed to it because. It's in so many things, and, and I try to eat, obviously, as organic and, you know, wild as possible, but, you know, I do go to restaurants here and there. Um, I do like to travel, so sometimes I have to eat less than ideal food in order to continue, you know, to keep going, you know what I mean? Right. So um, some of the things that I really like to keep the effects of, of, of any glyphosate um, exposure that I might have is... Uh, mineral waters are great. Um, you know, uh, Gerol Steiner is my favorite. I drink that stuff quite a bit. And and if I have any kind of um, allergenic responses or any kind of uh, you know, uh, uh, my my digestion doesn't feel great, um, and it's usually after I eat you know something that probably wasn't the best quality food, um, I drink some of that mineral water, and it just like takes care of any kind of weird like upset stomach that i might have it just takes care of it and it's because it's so rich in minerals and it's helping to put back some of that stuff in your body that you're losing from either from anti-nutrients or from any kind of weird chemicals that you might ingest from food or you know drinking coffee that's not very good quality um all this all these regular foods that people eat like 24 hours a day on a regular basis, all this stuff has Roundup on it, like all processed foods, like all industrial, commercialized processed foods have Roundup on it. Like, and that's just, that's it. There's a list somewhere, and if, and if I can find it, I'll send it to you, and you can include it in the show notes, but it's mm -hmm. a list of all of the things that is in Roundup. Like, it's in watermelons, it's in squash, it's in so many things that people don't even think about. It's not just in the grains. It's in so many other organic things because it gets in the soil and it and the plants take it in. And it it just it just takes over. And it's also destroying the soil too because as it goes in and it keep, and binds to all these minerals, it gets washed away mm. into the rivers, into the streams, and as it's doing that, it's destroying the microbiome of the of the land. And, you know, it's destroying the soil of the planet and it's also destroying the soil that's inside of our bodies, too. Is that also um, contaminating the water and thus the, the, the animals within the water, too? Absolutely. There's a, there was a study that I saw about what it's doing in the, in the Great Lakes and it's basically causing a lot of the fish to die and the toxic algae to take over because... It's it's destroying the all of the natural bacteria that live mm. in the, in the water and the algae it's bloom right. It's killing that and the algae is taken over. Yeah, um, and I've seen it. You know, I've I've driven by farms and you can just see the like 
the just the green like the green algae in the ponds and stuff it just and it it's it smells and you can just tell that there's something going on here that's just not good and and the amount of roundup that's used on all of these non-organic crops is like just off the charts i mean i've seen i've driven by uh, you know, I, I live close to Indiana, and Indiana is one of the you know biggest corn farms in the world. Pretty much the whole state is just ju- a giant cornfield, and um, you just see these giant machines just dumping Roundup by the hundreds of millions of gallons on all this stuff, and it just it just you know it all flows downhill. It all goes into the water. It goes into the um, goes into the waterways and the animals are getting it in in their bodies and it's just really it's just really something that people really need to be to be worried about but the great thing about uh, wild foods and, and how this all ties in is when you're gathering wild foods as long as they're not going to be exposed to this stuff you're you're pretty safe from it because of the seclusion that a lot of wild foods have, you know, you're going to have to hike out into the woods to get to your, to your foraging spots. Right. Um, it's not great to, to, to forage, uh, close to, uh, to close to a roadside because a lot of municipalities and counties and things are spraying the roundup to keep the weeds down on the sides of the road so they don't have to mow. Um, oh yeah. I wanted to make a distinction between, um, processed foods um, in commercial foods and industrial foods. Okay. Um, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of misconceptions, a lot of miscommunications about these terms. Um, to me, processed food isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. Um, humans have been eating processed foods for a really long time. Um, I think that the problem is, 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 is the freshness of the foods. Um, if, if we're going to be eating, things like flowers and we're going to be eating things like nuts and we're going to be eating thing, you know, drinking things like coffee. Um, we really need to get these things as fresh as possible. Um, because there's a reason why, why processing happens, um, because it makes the food more digestible to us. The problem is, Mm -hmm. is that when we're, when we're eating the industrial commercial versions of processed foods, that stuff is old. You know what I mean? If you're buying flour, um, from somewhere, not only is it going to be contaminated with, with all kinds of pesticides and herbicides, it's also going to be rancid because it's been sitting in a warehouse for who knows how long. But if we're if we're doing the processing ourselves, in many cases we're going to get a little bit of exercise out of it, especially if we're foraging. We're going to be out on the landscape, gathering and bringing these foods in ourselves. You know, we're going to be walking and moving around and climbing and just getting you know, getting a lot of good exercise. And then when we bring them into the house, we're going to be grinding them up. We're going to be, uh, mixing them. We're going to be, uh, doing the roasting ourselves, you know, all these things that contribute to food over a term being bad. If we're doing them ourselves and then eating the food right away, we're not going to be getting the negative effects of, of eating a processed food that's been processed, you know, days, weeks, or months ago. Um, and I think that that's one of the things too, with, with wild foods in general is you have to be a little bit more intentional with your eating and you have to be a little bit more prepared. Um, if that makes sense, you have to be thinking ahead. You have to say, okay, um, I want to have some, you know, I want to have acorn flour 
in a week. Well, I need to start doing that today. I need to take the acorns out today and I need to grind them up today and I need to get those things soaking so in a week I can have some acorn flour Um, or, you know, coffee, for example. Um, I used to never drink coffee because it always gave me a headache. It just Mm. gave me a headache and I just would not feel great um, after after I drank coffee. But I found out that if I get coffee that was roasted, you know, a few days ago and I grind it myself, it's fine. I get, I get the energy boost from it, but I don't get the crash and I don't get the, um, and I don't get the, the, the brain fog and the headache that, uh, that you get if you buy coffee that's been, you know, ground six months ago and has been sitting on in the whole food shelf for a while. I wonder if that Uh, has to do with any of the mycotoxins in the talk in the coffee as well. Exactly. I mean, and, and that's another thing too, about a lot of processed foods, especially nuts, legumes and grains, um, and, and coffee because coffee is a technically I think it's a bean or a berry, mm-hmm. um, or yeah it's it's technically a considered a fruit um, of the plant, but all of these things they're stored in a manner that doesn't really support longevity. They're stored in in, in really large containers that you know they can get moisture introduced into them, which is going to cause mold growth which is going to cause, you know, immune responses when you eat the things, you know, that you're eating like the nuts and the legumes and the grains. But if you're buying fresh, you know, versions of these things that are not very old and you're storing them properly in airtight containers and then you're grinding them yourself as you need them, you're not going to be getting exposed to the same kinds of um, same kinds of things. And so if we look at a lot of indigenous cultures, we find that for example, they stored their acorns in the shell and they last for years. Like I have some acorns that I've just been going through here this past couple days that are, that are two years old and I dried them in and I left them in the shell and they're just as fresh as the day that I harvested them Wow! because the shell is airtight. There's no air really that's getting in that shell. Okay. So the indigenous people that harvested acorns, they would store them for years because Acorns take anywhere from 18 to 24 months or more to develop. So the acorns that I'm going to harvest in two years are just now starting to, to develop on the trees. And I've, and I've been noticing, I've been walking around looking at different, uh, different oak trees that I've harvested from years before. And I'm like, okay, that is what an acorn bud looks like. Mm. And I'm just seeing, you know, month after month, year after year, how these things are developing and realizing like, okay, Stored food isn't necessarily bad. We just have to store it in a way that doesn't compromise the nutrition of the exactly. of the actual food. Exactly. Yeah, and, and and indigenous people had all that stuff figured out. Um, and the more we study that, and the more we learn that, the more we realize that a lot of the things that we do now are things that, like processing food, for example, processed food is not a Neolithic invention. We just do it in a way now that only um, is is profit driven. It's only profit driven. It's it's not about it's not about health. It's about making money and keeping the human livestock, if you will, fed to produce labor and profits for other people. Oh man, we could go into a whole nother yeah. wormhole with that one. Yeah. 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 Definitely. But I mean, if if you look at it that way, you start to realize like what what's really going on with the food system. Um, 
And uh, we could probably do a whole show on just like ways you could ways you can get off the industrial food system, like not not just with wild foods, but even with um, you know other ways like joining buying clubs and, and, and going to farms and meeting farmers and, and doing all this stuff. Now, obviously, I don't think farming is the best way, but it's it's a it's it's a good way. It's a transition. Get, yeah, it's a transition to getting you know better quality food. Um, so to kind of wrap that up, I would say that, that, that the more time you spend with your food and, and, and just making fresh food, you know what I mean? Like taking the time to buy, um, just, you know, if you're somebody that eats wheat still, like just buying fresh organic wheat berries and getting a grain mill and milling your flour and then making a pizza crust with that. Or, right. you know, if, if you want to make a, if you want to make some, some brownies, even with almond flour, buy some fresh, raw, organic almonds, soak them and then make your flour with them. Um, or, you know, you can make flour with a lot of other kinds of nuts, pecans and, and hazelnuts, both make a great flour. So, um, and, and what's funny is not only when you do this though, you're, you're saving money cause you're also skipping the process of you know, that's a big part. You know, I feel like a lot of people think to do this lifestyle, it's expensive. It's actually extremely inexpensive, right? I mean, there are yeah. certain things that you need to invest into beforehand. However, you know, things like this is, is very simple and it saves you, it saves you a lot of money and, um, you're getting higher nutrition from that as well. But exactly. And I think though, a lot of people are just so focused on all the other things in life yeah. and how exciting they are and how awesome they are, which is, you know, it's fine. You know, you have to experience the world and, and, and what the modern world has to offer isn't all bad. But I think getting more in touch with with just being more connected to your food at its source. And, you know, obviously we can't get everything direct. And right. we're going to want to get some things from other places like coffee, like mm -hmm. tea. Um, we're still in this that, transition culture. Yeah, we're, we're in this transition. And... Um, just getting as close to close to as as close to the source of the food as we can that still supports you know our well that, that's going to support our well-being you know it's and not only is it is it good for our health it's interesting too it's fun you know what i mean you can i remember when i was a kid one time in school we made butter they had some heavy cream and oh, we put so it in cool. a jar and we shook it up and then it turned into butter um, so just you know those little things that you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis that get you back in touch with your food. Like for example, like I buy butter sometimes. I love butter. Who doesn't love butter mm. unless you're allergic to milk or something. But like I'll buy, you know, I'll buy a, a few gallons of heavy cream and I'll turn that into butter and then I'll turn that into ghee and I'll do that whole process, you know, from beginning to end just so I can see what it really takes to go buy that jar of ghee God, on yeah. the store at Whole Foods. You know, people say, oh, it's ex ghee is so expensive and it's like well yeah if you make it the yourself, processing you'll you'll see you know it, it's it, it's hard it's, it's hard work it's not it's not that hard but it's it's a lot of work and to yeah. make that on a massive scale it's like wow you have to put in this really large manufacturing system just to get ghee yeah it's you know time I mean? intensive it's yeah, time it, intensive that's what i like to tell you know people that i work with personally is for their diet example exactly so if you want french fries 
right? If you want French fries, well, then you know what the best thing to do is, you know, obviously go pick the potato from your garden and then use the oil that you have at your house and make the French fries. And I'll tell you what, not only are they going to taste better, it's going to take you a longer time and you're not going to want to do it very often because you know what? It's kind of just like you said, labor intensive. It takes a lot of time and it's not in the end. It's not exactly worth it. I mean, you could be making a lot of other better choices with your time. But yeah. And that's another thing too, is, is these big, these big caloric payoffs for very little input. You know what I mean? We're, we get these massively calorie dense foods, you know, and we just have to give somebody $5 and there we got 2000 calories in front of us. But if you go out and try to make 2000 calories yourself wild off the landscape, like you're going to be putting in some work, you're going to be putting in some sweat, you're going to be putting in some time, you know, but you know, if you want to farm potatoes or if you want to go out and gather, uh, you know, 50 pounds of acorns, like you're putting in some time. Yeah. But if you're just handing some guy five bucks and you're getting a, a lot of food, there's just a big mismatch there. There's a disconnect. Yeah, there's a big disconnect there. And, and, and now we can just shovel food into our mouths at will, you know, as much as our incomes will allow and you know, we don't have the, we don't have the recourse of, 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 of exercise. And that's, you know, that's a whole nother topic of, you know, people, you know, they go to work so they can buy their food, so they can eat their food, so they can go to the gym and they can drive to the gym. You know, it's just this whole big hamster wheel. But if you're in, if you're in nature and you're doing it yourself, it's all, it's all there. It's all built in. It's all encompassing. You know what I mean? It's all encompassing. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's like a whole, it's just a whole integrated strategy of of movement and health and and well-being well you know what i i know that we're coming up on time but there's something that i do definitely want to i do want to get to is is uh, a little bit of the facebook group you know a little bit of the story of your facebook group um rewild yourself i know that has a lot of um that comes with uh the thoughts of daniel vitalis and things like that of the rewild yourself podcast maybe you want to explain maybe your relationship with that and Maybe some of the things that that people talk about in there and what you'd like to see people talking about in that form. Well, first, I want to be clear that the um, that the that the rewild yourself group is no longer directly affiliated with Daniel or any of his um, any of his staff members at Sir Thrival. Um, Rewild yourself obviously is a slogan that he has used um, as part of his personal brand. Um, But the group itself is not necessarily tied to him anymore. So, um, I've seen several people post in there, like, you know, directly talking, um, at Daniel saying, you know, Daniel Vitalis, I have this question. Um, if people want to do that, they can go to his actual Facebook page and do that. And they'll get a better response, a quicker, faster response from him there. Um, Daniel just turned the group over to me, to my administration, um, because it just was not something that he wanted to invest his time anymore into. Um, but what we can use, still use the Facebook group for is discussing some of these practices that I talked about today. Um, you know, processing our own wild foods or non wild foods, you know, just, just that showing people like how you're doing it, how are you turning these raw ingredient foods into foods? You know, that can be with wild foods that could be with, you know, more, um, agricultural foods. Um, we can all, I also want to focus the group on talking about primitive skills, you know, fire making, shelter making, um, tracking, um, 
you know, any of those kind of things that, that are connecting people to nature, um, I really want people to be out there, you know, taking pictures of, of, of what they're doing, making videos of what they're doing, um, just really spreading the message to each other and to the rest of the world. Um, and that's what I want the Facebook group to be about. I think that sometimes we get lost in that group on philosophy and which is, which is cool. I love philosophy. I always have, but I think that sometimes it can pull us and anchor us too much to our computers. We're really trying to prove a point to someone that's just not going to receive it. So, um, I'm not against people posting philosophical questions on there, but I'd really love to see more dirt time discussion versus, um, kind of more, ideas and philosophies behind rewilding right yeah exactly more of the more of the 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 actual physical skills is really what i want to see on there mostly but you know i'm also open to anything um as long as it's not gonna cause a serious you know discord in the group which has happened a few times and i've had to remove some people um but i really want it to be open to everyone um because i think that as the rewilding kind of message spreads, you know, more mainstream people are starting to become interested in it. And I think that sometimes people can be a little bit too perfectionist. And I think that that tends to exclude some people and it really turns a lot of people off. And I understand that there are some things that need to be addressed and some things that need to be understood, especially as it relates to cultural appropriation and things like that. But I think that sometimes we get a little bit too hard on people with that stuff from the beginning and then it turns them off in general and they just kind of go back to what they were doing and it sort of still perpetuates this modern lifestyle that's not sustainable. Um, So I'd really like to attract, you know, everyone that can listen and and be heard that's also not going to be a threat to other people's um, participation, if that makes sense. Yeah, and there's, I mean... And guys, um, those who are listening, there are, there's a wealth of information there. There are a ton of incredibly intelligent people that post in that group. Um, a lot of which I'm actually trying to get on to the podcast so that you guys can learn a little bit from them. Anybody from, you know, uh, Pascal Baldur, I think if I'm saying his name correctly, um, yeah. with wild foods and, um, preparation, um, there are, uh, you know, Arthur Haynes, which is obviously a huge digital mentor of both Ben and myself. Um, you know, all, all these people are very accessible on that group and they're all really willing to help as long as they see people taking action, you know, cause it doesn't matter, you know, if you're on the computer, just like Ben said inside, um, again, just absorbing the information, but not going out there and and acting on it. And that, I think that was, that's the main point. He wants to see people actively participating in the rewilding movement, you know, show exactly where you are. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner, if you're just getting started, let people know, you know, this is a good place to find mentors and people who can really help you out in the beginning part of your journey. Absolutely. Um, so I will say that, um, if you want to come into the group, come in. I don't, it doesn't matter, you know, what, what your background is. Don't feel like, you know, you're going to be, um, you're going to be rejected or anything like that. Anyone, um, from any walk of life, please come in, um, and, and, and hang out and and learn from us and we'll hopefully learn from you too. Yeah. I mean, again, they're, they're trying to build a culture guys, you know, the, we want, we want 
obviously like-minded people and it doesn't matter where you come from, you know, or where you started only where you're going. Um, and you know, well, here's a quick question actually, but before we wrap it all up, then what kind of person do you typically see joining the rewild yourself Facebook group? Um, I see a lot of people coming off of corporate America's type jobs, um, that are just, you know, they've, they've really lost themselves in that world and they're trying to recover from the, the, um, the disconnection that that world creates, you know, you're kind of on somebody else's time when you're, when you're working for a, a corporation. And, and even in my job that I currently have, um, it's a really, it's a really great job. Um, I really get to harmonize with some of the natural cycles of, of the seasons and of the days, um, the sun up, the sun down kind of thing. But it also, you know, there still is that, that, um, element of being on somebody else's time and, and having to be available, um, for them, um, on some times that I might want to be doing things for myself. Um, so I see a lot of people coming from that kind of a perspective of, of just learning how to reharmonize um, with the natural cycles that they've been disconnected from for, you know, some people just a few years and other people for, you know, decades. We have a lot of people coming in there that are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s um, that are just like, hey, I'm trying to get my health back. You know, what can I do? What are some things, what are some easy things that I can do that can, you know, help me reharmonize? Um, I tend to see also a lot of people from the, you know, the, the, the survivalist prepper mm-hmm. kind of world, which is great. You know, I've been in and out of that world um, for several years. Um, a lot of paleo people that are looking to go beyond the, the paleo um, dogma, which I think is, as far as dogma goes, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a better one than veganism. I mean, I don't want to get into the better versus worse thing, but I really got to go out on a limb and say that the paleo has really got a little bit more going on than the vegan, um, than the vegan thing. But we also do get a lot of vegans in there um, that um, have a strong voice, and sometimes it's a voice that I don't necessarily agree with, but we try to let those people, um, if they're going to do it in a respectful way, right. um, kind of challenge some of our ideas about um, eating, um, which, is, which is great. Sometimes I enjoy that. Um, and I still sympathize with a lot of the vegan stuff about animal welfare and animal treatment, and um, I think that there's still a lot of um, work that needs to be done in that, in that arena. Um, so yeah, I mean, really we see a lot of, a lot of different, a lot of different people coming in and out of that group. Um, and you know, sometimes people just show up for a couple of days and they realize, you know, this isn't for me. Um, I like what I learned here, but I'm going to move on to the next thing, which is fine too. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't, this isn't, uh, this isn't the, um, this isn't the savior, you know what I mean? It's not going to help everybody, but it's going to help a lot of people. Um, I don't want to say that my way is the best, but man, rewilding has really done a lot for me, and I hope it can do a lot for more um, other diverse demographics than me. And and like you know, to kind of close that out, just like Peter Michael says, you know, all paths lead to rewilding. Exactly. Uh, so it was great having you on, Ben. Um, real quick before we go, maybe you want to give a shout out to people or. Um, maybe uh, tell people what you're up to, maybe a project that you're doing right now that you're passionate about and how they can connect with you. Um, well, right now I'm really working on getting my, getting my business um, set up. Um, you know, you can support me by going to Wild Food Warehouse. I've got some content up there about wild rice. 
um, read that, you know, if you want to um, put it in order, um, that would be great. That would help me um, reinvest some more money and some more time into spreading the, the wild rice um, to more people. Um, it also supports um, Native Americans in Minnesota because that's actually who I'm buying it from. So when you buy rice from me, you're also going to be supporting a, a reservation up there that, you know, those oh, places always can use more support. Um, because the government certainly isn't giving them what they deserve to get. Um, so anything we can do to help those people um, is is awesome. Um, I want to shout out Maine Primitive Skills School because I've done a lot of a lot of work up there, um, taken several classes up there and learned a lot from Mike and um, all of his guys, all of his apprentices, all of his teachers up there are great. Um, they're spreading an awesome message, and I don't think that they get enough credit um, for what they're doing up there. Um, Arthur Haynes as well. I've learned so much from him um, over the past seven years now, um, watching his videos, um, going to his classes. Um, I've learned so much. I can't even can't even begin to describe the amount of gratitude that I have for what he's done for me and for hundreds, if not thousands of other people um, around the world. Myself included. Yeah, exactly. Um and just check out the Facebook page, you know, come in, say, Hey, um, and that's it. I mean, just keep, keep going, you know, keep rewilding and keep trying to get better. Oh yeah. Findaspring.com. Don't forget about find a spring. If you've never, if you've never been to a spring, now's the time. Um, there's springs all over this country, all over the world. You just got to find them. Awesome, Ben. Well, great, man. It was awesome talking to you. Um, we'll try and get you on another episode to maybe uh, maybe we'll delve deeper into wild rice and why that's that should also be a staple of perhaps our diet too. But um, yeah, absolutely. For another episode, man. Again, thank you for coming on. Yep. See ya. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating and review of the show. In this way, you not only help show your support, but you help us spread the word and place us higher in the rankings. If you can't do that, then share this episode on your favorite social media network or continue the conversation with the tribe and myself on the Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But remember, be sure to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at AncestralHealthRadio.com.